You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning. All right, here we go. Everybody's here. Good. Well, let me take this off so you can all understand me a little better. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. That's Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. We're going to be honing in just on these two verses as we talk about church planting and specifically planting Redemption Hill Church. So Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10. As you turn there, uh, this illustration pains me as a Cardinal fan to use, but it's a pretty good one, uh, in that in 2016, the Chicago Cubs shocked the world when they ended a over 100-year drought of winning uh, a World Series. When they showed up that year to spring training, they had done a ton in the offseason to, to build up this team, and they knew that they had a really competitive team going in. And so their manager, Joe Madden, showed up on day one, and he had made these T-shirts for everybody on the team, and they said, try not to stink. And that's all it said on it. And he was handing them out saying, try not to stink. And he was telling them just the reality that their team had been made up of a tremendous amount of talent. A lot of money had been spent and a lot of deals made to acquisition all the players on that team. And he believed they had a world-class team. He went there and he told them on day one, I believe if you just go out, do your job and execute, we will be world champions. So this year, just try not to stink. And that's what he told them to do. And in many ways, that's really what my sermon's about today, is telling Paramount to continue to do good. Coming to a church plant who's already planting within its first decade and saying, you need to do more, is kind of crazy. You're actually a bit ahead of most people. Every time I talk about Paramount and what we're doing, they look at us and think, you guys are crazy for doing what you do. And so in some ways, I want to commend you for what you've done, your faithful giving to us, your faithfulness to send us out and what that looks like. Most churches that church plant have 300 people showing up on a Sunday. It's just the reality of church planting. And then we've said, hey, we're at 120. Let's go do this all over again. So what I want to encourage you today is to continue to do good. As we look at this passage, and the passage tells us to not grow weary in doing good. That's really the main point of the passage and the goal of today. So let's look at Galatians 6, 9 through 10. It says this, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Well, my first point that I want to draw out is, is really a contextual one. This is something when we... Uh, while we're preaching expositionally today, we're not working through the book of Galatians, so I have to do a little bit of backdrop uh, covering just to, to make sure we're all understanding this passage rightly. And that's this, is that we must do good together. See, what's happening in the book of Galatians is Paul is writing to a group of cr Christians uh, who were Jewish. And these Christians were throwing the law onto Gentile believers, saying that they must also be circumcised as well as put their faith in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is no, justification comes by faith alone and that these Gentile believers do not need to go through circumcision. And so there's this divide that's happening within the church and he's writing to them 
And it's important that as we look at verses like this, that we don't individualize them, that we understand that Paul is writing to an entire group of Christians and a body of Christians as well. So as he goes and he proves that justification comes by faith alone in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, excuse me, Galatians 1, 2, 3, and 4, in Galatians 5, he takes a turn, like Paul does in lots of his letters, and that he gives us the gospel, and then he tells us this is how the gospel is now lived out. And that's what we get to when we hit this passage, is he's giving us practical ways that the gospel then fleshes itself out in the community of faith. See, Paul is assuming that when we read this passage, that we see that the Christian life is lived out together. There is no concept in the New Testament whatsoever of lone gun Christians. It just does not exist. Every verb in this, these two verses is plural. He doesn't say you, as in one person, don't grow weary in doing good. But he says, let us not grow weary in doing good. We miss something vital and something incredibly important in the Christian life when we think that these passages are just written to us as individuals and we don't realize that these passages are written to us as the community of faith. That doing good is always intended to happen within community. We can even think of that in Jesus. One thing that we say at Redemption Hill already is team ministry is the way of the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus, the, even the God-man himself, doesn't go out and do ministry all by himself. But he calls Andrew, and he calls Simon, and he calls John and James. Really right off the bat, right in the first uh, chapters of the book of Mark. His, his goal was to build a team. And then when he sends them out, he always sends them out in twos. He doesn't send them out by themselves. Team ministry is the way of the New Testament. And so what we have to see in this is that we must do good, and to do good, we must do good together. And that's a vital part of not growing weary. We have lived that in the Rosentrader household in just the last month. We adopted a baby, uh, Vera, Brittany and I were sitting in bed. I was just cozily reading a book, getting ready to go to sleep, and all of a sudden, we get the call. Vera is here. She came about a month early. My heart is racing. I don't remember how to do infant car seat anymore. I thought I had time. I'm like watching YouTube videos, trying to figure it out, because we're trying to figure out how we got to do this. And all the while, she was in Dayton. And through Vera's situation and different choices of her birth mom uh, that were made, Vera had to have a, a bit of a hospital stay. We had no idea that any of this was really coming. No one had really warned us about this. We kind of thought it was a possibility. So there were some red flags going up. But no one officially told us the reality of her condition or what we would have to go through. And by and large, we, in the end, we spent 10 days in the hospital, roughly, in Dayton. And we had to completely reorient our lives, take care of our two-year-old, and figure out a way to bring this baby and, and live out what God has commanded us to do, and that's the care of orphans and adopt, something that Brittany and I believe that God was calling us to do. And here's the truth. I have never been more aware of my frailty or weakness than in the adoption of my children. Both of those adoptions led us to a, just stare at the fact that we cannot do this on our own. Massively overwhelmed, outgunned, and completely incapable fulfilling this thing that we believed God had called us to do. If it was not for my in-laws and for my church, I don't know how we would have pulled this off. Just quite frankly, I don't know how we care for this tiny little baby if it isn't for the community of faith coming around inside us. Does that mean that we're not weary? <laughs> not even close. We are weary, 
but we're not giving up and we're not exasperated and we're not throwing in the towel. We're not calling it quits because our family and our church family have rallied around us. And that's what it looks like to do good in this world. The reality is, is that the, the heartaches and troubles of this world so vastly outweigh any individual that it has never been God's plan for one individual to, 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 to do good the way that he has commanded us to do good. That all of these things are team efforts. They're family efforts. Team ministry is the way of the New Testament. And so we want to say thank you to you guys. Our fridge is still full, and I think there's plans for it to continue to be full for a little bit. That is a massive help to us. Brittany has been in tears more than once telling people thank you about that because it's incredibly helpful. We're so helpful for our family watching Judah. We're so just incredibly thankful for this whole process because we know we could not have done it without you. And the reality is, is church planting works in a very similar kind of way. We have said over and over again, as we reminded you, as we were planting Paramount Church, and we told you about all of our supporting, sending, and helpful churches, this truth, that churches plant churches. That's, that's the thing. What we have to, to push back on in the next couple of months is not to say, Josh and Brittany are planting a church, or Leland and Megan are planting a church, or Ben and Kim are planting a church. But the reality is this, is churches plant churches. Paramount Church as a body, as a community of faith, is planting another church. That is what is happening. And we have to have that team mentality if we ever want to see this thing that God is calling us to do come to fruition. If we want to see success, we have to see that the New Testament way is a team-based ministry where we rally together when difficulty strikes, when the unexpected happens. And it will happen in the life of our small church. And so that's the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that we must do good together. That comes from the greater context of, of Galatians and all throughout of it. The second thing I want you to see is this, is we must do good to be rewarded. The next little part of the passage says, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So just for a second, I do want to take just a look at, at these words that, that kind of mean weariness. There's two different words, and they get sandwiched in there, that the promise of in due time we will reap gets sandwiched between these two different Greek words. And they both actually have really similar meanings. Uh, the, the translation we're using this morning at Paramount translates the first one as do not lose heart, and the second one as do not grow weary. I actually really like what the ESV, NIV, and the KJV do here a little better because I think it helps flesh out what Paul's trying to say in that the first verb is translated, do not grow weary, and the second one is translated as, and do not give up, or in the KJV, KJV, it says, do not faint, which is actually a little more literal, that particular use of that, that verb, that it's saying to not, to not give up, to not become exasperated. And I think it's really helpful because when we talk about weariness and we can say, well, don't grow weary, we can almost, almost kind of say, well, if I'm going to get tired doing it, maybe I shouldn't do it. And that's not what Paul is saying. We know through Paul's life that he experienced a lot of different kinds of weariness, but he's talking about a weariness that leads to giving up, a weariness that leads to fainting, a weariness that leads to burnout, that we we work and we work and we work and we finally throw in the towel and say, I can't do this anymore, I give up. And that's what he's saying. If we cannot grow weary to the point of giving up, in due time, we will reap. In, in the rest of the passage, we see it just a couple of verses before that, that we're told what we're going to reap, that those who reap to the Spirit will reap eternal life there in verse 8. 
And so he's talking about eternal life, that if we, if we don't grow weary to the point of growing up, giving up, we will not grow weary, or excuse me, we will, we will reap eternal life. Infant brain kicking in there. But here's a really interesting thing, I think, when we look at that, is, is, is what does that really mean? Because we know that we're saved by grace and not of works, so why does my doing good and not growing weary of doing good matter or whether or not I will reap eternal life? What's happening in that passage? Well, I think there are two things that are really important for us to see just theologically in what the Bible would say. One is the fact, and we've said this a lot here at Paramount, is God doesn't just ordain the ends, but he also ordains the means. Meaning this, that when you become a Christian, we believe that you are sealed in the Spirit. And that you will not fall away because he has done a supernatural work in you and he's going to continue you on. But it's not just like there's this end goal promise. What God says in that is the way that he's going to keep you, the way he's going to guard your salvation is through what we call progressive sanctification or becoming more like Jesus over time through good works. The book of Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 2 that that we are saved by faith and not of works that no one can boast. But the immediate verse after that is, but we have been made in Christ's workmanship to walk in good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. See, you see, it's God's ordained plan for you to walk in good works that he's prepared for you. And in walking in those good works, that's how he will preserve your faith, that we do have to walk in them. Now, as I, I told you, there are two things I want to look at. There's the one, but even then I look at that and I say, so then what does this mean? What am I reaping? And does doing good really matter as I walk through this? And what does that all, all mean? And I think here, it's, this is really helpful. And uh, if I don't do a good job explaining this, John Piper does a really good job explaining this. So you can go, go look at him. But we could see in Psalm 1611 that it tells us that in God's presence, there is the fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's a promise to everyone. That in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Everyone who knows Jesus who's put their faith and trust in him, will one day be drawn into the presence of God in the new kingdom. And that means you will have fullness of joy. I believe that's completely true in Psalm 1611. So then what is doing good and reaping eternal life? How does that kind of play in? Well, in Luke 6, 38, Jesus says this, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And here's what I think is really important. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. What we can see is that our fullness and how that gets measured is, I believe, contingent on the good works that we do earthly here as Christians. Meaning justification and entry into the new kingdom and new heaven is solely based on grace. And when you enter in, you will be completely and totally full of joy. But we have to see is that God's joy is infinite and his willingness to lavish us in that joy is infinite. So what then would hold us back from experiencing the fullness of joy? Well, nothing. You will experience fullness of joy. The question is, is what is your fullness? What is your measure? Or another way to put it might be, how big will your cup be? 
earthly good, this side of heaven, prepares your soul to fully enjoy the goodness and infinite and inexhaustible joy that God has to pour out into you in the new kingdom. That we can see that that, that that is what seems to be happening in the New Testament. That good works and living the way that Jesus has called us to live does prepare the soul to have a greater amount of fullness. Let me explain it to you this way. There's a restaurant here that a lot of the Paramount men like to go to. It's called Texas Day Brazil. They love Texas Day Brazil. If you've never been to Texas Day Brazil, it's a wonderful place. You should go. See, what they do at Texas Day Brazil is you go in and you all just pay one price and then it is a buffet. But this is not any ordinary buffet. See, buffet foods, you know, when we say that, it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if that's going to be very good. But what they have is they have a bunch of guys and girls in the back over this open fire pit and they have these gigantic things of meat on large metal skewers. And they're slowly cooking and roasting. And you have this little button, and green means keep it coming, red means stop. When you go with the Paramount guys, you will very, very rarely ever see that thing go red. They're always saying, keep it coming. And there's these guys, and it's like this wonderful thing. They just walk up to you, and they say, how much? And they'll just keep slicing, and they'll just keep slicing. It is if you can say, an inexhaustible amount of meat. I know nobody who has left Texas Brave Brazil and said, you know, I'm just not quite full. And if they did, they're not doing it right. It's a place where everybody is filled to their fullness. However, some have a little more capacity for fullness than others. The preparation that goes into Texas Day Brazil can have a direct impact on the amount of fullness of joy you get to experience there. That doesn't mean you won't leave full. Everybody leaves full. But the guy who skipped breakfast intentionally so he could eat a little more at the lunch buffet will experience a little more of the joy. The guy who really took it a step further and chugged water the night before to expand his stomach. Not that I know anybody here who would have done something like that. The preparation that you take and go into that does have a direct impact. Does that mean anybody doesn't leave full? No. Does that mean that anybody looks and says, man, I wish I could get more joy? No. That's not how the kingdom of heaven will work. But I do believe when we look at these passages throughout the New Testament that talk about doing good and they talk about this direct result of the new kingdom and what that looks like, it's an increase of capacity to experience an inexhaustible and infinite amount of joy. John Piper would say it like this. It's like God's joy is a giant ocean that everyone gets to wade in, but we all just have a cup that we throw out into that ocean and draw back in. And the question isn't, will my cup be full? The question is, how large will my cup be? And that's what I want to encourage you is because as we look at that reality and we see things like, why should I join a church planting team when I'm a part of a really healthy local church? Why should I give above and beyond what I'm already giving to a good and healthy church and give to something else? Why go to the foreign mission field? Why go across the street to that uncomfortable conversation with my neighbor? Why care for the poor, the sick, and the hurting? Well, one, because God has commanded you to do it. But, but I want you to know when God commands us to do something, he loves to make you happy. And he loves to bless you. And God is saying that there is more joy to be experienced here and now in living faithfully, but not materially, and in the future. 
in that new heaven, that new earth, I believe that you are preparing your soul to experience the joy of God at a greater and greater capacity as you sow your life deeply into the kingdom of God. And that God will not be mocked. And those who sow according to the spirit will reap eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just eternal in time, but it's eternal in every measure, and infinite in every measure, like joy and peace and love. Those things are also eternal and infinite. And God is preparing you to experience that in its fullness and in its goodness. And so I want to encourage you. That's why we want to take part in some of these things. As your pastors encourage us to do things like that and say, hey, let's plant a church early on. It's because we want to see Paramount experience as much joy as possible in the new heaven and new earth. Because we know that this place is finite, but God is preparing our souls to experience his goodness in an amazing way. So I want to see that we must be do good to get that reward. And when the Bible talks about those things, it's not talking about your justification. That is by grace alone, faith alone. And it's not saying you're going to miss out. You won't miss out. You'll be totally full. It's just the reality of when God's pleasures are infinite, will your soul be ready to experience them? As we move on in our text, we also see that not only should we do good to be rewarded, but we must do good and do good now. We want to be people who take initiative in doing what is right and what is good. Our text tells us, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. I, I am maybe just like a constant loopholer. I'm constantly looking for a loophole. What's the most comfortable way for me to read this passage? What do I have to do? So I could read a passage like this and do something like, Well, as I have opportunity. You know, if I should stumble along somebody in need, like then I should help them. That's what opportunity looks like. Or, you know, I get the stimulus check and I don't need it. So now I'll look for opportunity to be generous. Uh, This thing happens. Oh, okay. Well, clearly now we're supposed to do good. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul isn't saying like, just as you go about living your own life, seeking the things that you like and you desire, when things come around and you happen to do good, now you should do good. But rather... In the context, again, reaping eternal life, Paul is talking about the end of the age. He's saying, while we have opportunity right now, let us do good to all people. Because the reality is, at the end of the age, at the return of Christ, there are certain aspects of good you will no longer have the opportunity to do. The presence of evil in this world provides you opportunity to do good. There will be no non-believers in the new kingdom. There will be no need for evangelism in the new kingdom. So while you have opportunity, do good now. There will be no sick in the new kingdom. So while you have opportunity, care for the sick now. There will be no poor, no no heavy laden, no depressed, no worried and anxious people in the new kingdom. These are realities now that require good doing and us bringing the measure of God, the kingdom of God into their lives through the proclamation of the gospel and the constant encouragement of the body of Christ that we will not have in the future. That in the new heaven, new earth, there aren't these kinds of needs, and so there isn't a need to do good. So as James reminds us, this life is but a vapor, here one day and gone the next. Don't wait around to do good. You don't know how much time you have. 
Just a couple weeks ago, there was a church planter in our city who's probably one or two years older than me. He had a stroke out of nowhere. By the God's grace, he's doing much better. He seems to be making a full recovery. You can continue to pray for him. But I'll tell you what, to me, that was a reminder. Today is the day that we must do good. He's a healthy guy, healthier than me, does CrossFit. He's all about it. That's like one of the ways he reaches people. And out of nowhere, is laid up in the hospital. I don't say that to scare you. I don't say to push you. But we don't know. You don't know what, what God has in store for you in your life. You don't run the rat race of the American... Uh, I, I've heard so many times in churches, when the kids get a little older, then we'll get more involved. Well, when they graduate from high school, then we'll have more time. When this happens, listen, you're always busy in life. It never gets any easier. Today is the day to do good. These things are lifestyle decisions, and they will impact you forever. So we must take the opportunity now. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, there are three parables. I won't read the whole chapter, but I want us to take a, a, a big step back and not lose the forest for the trees and look at all three parables kind of together. So I'll just paraphrase them for us real quick. But they all have to do with return of Jesus. And, and, and so the first one is, is a parable about ten virgins. And, and, and they go out to wait for the bridegroom and ten of the, or excuse me, five of the virgins are prepared and they bring oil for their lamps and five of them are unprepared and they don't bring oils for the lamps. And the bridegroom takes a little longer than they think and they all fall asleep. And when they wake up, they see him and those who are prepared and have more oil are able to trim their lamps, light their lamp and then go meet the bridegroom. And the other five say, hey, give us some of your oil. And they say, no, 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 no. you go to um, the, the merchants and buy more oil. And so they leave, those five virgins who were not prepared, and they leave to go get that oil. And when they return, the bridegroom has taken the other five virgins into the wedding feast, and they're banging on the door saying, let us in. And they say, no, you are not ready for me. And I think the point of the parable is right there. Be prepared for the return of Jesus. But then the question we have to ask is, so what does it look like to be prepared for the return of Jesus? And I think the next two parables start to tell us. The next one is about one master and three slaves, and the master is going away. And he takes his three slaves, and to one he gives ten talents, to one he gives, or excuse me, to one he gives five talents, to one he gives two talents, and to the other he just gives one. To the one he gives five talents, he goes out and makes five more, so then he has a total of ten talents. To the one that he gives two talents, he goes out and he makes two more, and, and he, so he has four talents, and the one that he gives one talent goes, and he digs a hole, and he hides the money. And when he comes back, the master comes to collect, and the first slave is able to say, look, I, take, I took five talents, and I, and I made them into ten. Here you go. And he says, good job, my faithful servant. Come, and, and I'll make you now a master over ten cities. And to the next, he says, I, I brought you two more talents, and now four talents. He says, good job, my good and faithful servant. I will now give you four cities. And the one who just did one and dug a hole and didn't do anything brings it back to him and says, look, I brought you back the one talent that you gave me because I knew that you would reap uh, where you had not sown and that you were a harsh master. And what a misunderstanding of, of God. Anyway, but that's what he says that he is. He doesn't want to take any risk with the money. He doesn't want to do anything to try to, to expand this wealth that the master has given to him. And he casts him out into the fire. And he takes away his one talent and he gives it to the one who has now the 10 talents. He said, to much who has been given, more will be given. And to much, and to the one who has little, little will be given. 
And so again, now we just see broad principalizing facts of these parables of be ready for the return of Jesus. Number two, use your resources to be ready for his return. That when he comes, he's going to say, hey, I left you with abilities and resources. What'd you do with it? Did you expand the kingdom of God? We could even think that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that it's like a mustard seed and a small seed and it goes into a, a large tree. God's expectation is for us to grow the kingdom of God with the resources, talents, and abilities that he has given us to do that. And his saying, I am coming back to collect. And to one that has given much, much will be given in return. I think going back to what I said again about the increasing of your capacity to experience the goodness of God. That's what we see happening in this. And then finally, now we look, so we got to get real practical. So what does that really, really mean? And Matthew 25, 34 through 46 tell us. So I just want to look at, the, at those verses. Matthew 25, 34 is where we're going to look first. To give a little backdrop, Jesus has come. He says, the Son of Man will come and he will divide you into two groups. Some of you will be sheep, some of you will be goats. And to the goats, he says this in verse 34, if I can find it. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit, oh, excuse me, I switched around, uh, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. So he starts giving them this really practical outworking of what it looks like to sow into the kingdom of God. It looks like feeding the hungry. It looks like clothing the naked. It looks like caring for the sick. It looks like visiting the prisoner. But he says this to the goats. Then I will say also to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for you and the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it not, excuse me, to the extent you did not do to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So he just keeps getting more and more practical as he tells these parables. And he's saying, I am returning. I am coming back. And if you do not grow weary in due time, you will weep. God is trying to encourage us the reality of what this looks like. And so it's the truth of this is God calls us not to just do good, but to take initiative and do good. We cannot just sit back idly and say, I guess I'll just do good as the needs arise. Or if, if I orient my life in such a way that it's always my comforts in my way, that we'll live a life where we lose out on the resources God has given us to expand the kingdom of God. What he's saying to those 10 virgins is orient your life in such a way that you are prepared for the second coming of Jesus. 
Be ready. What he's saying to the, to the slaves that he's giving those things, he's saying, use your resources in such a way that you're expanding the kingdom of God. And what it looks like to expand to the kingdom of God is to care for the least of these. Those are the things that we're called to do and that what Jesus is calling us. This is one of the reasons that we plant churches because by planting churches, it enables us to care for a community that we cannot care for now. We know that churches preach the gospel and they preach good news where they are and they also care for the poor. That's what we also find in the book of Galatians, that Paul was to go and preach the good news and care for the poor. That we see that these two things come together and it elevates the kingdom of God and then God uses that to draw many people to himself. In the song we just sang, bringing many sons to glory. That's the good news of the gospel. Now as we read Matthew 25, I think what's really tricky though as a middle class, non-persecuted church is we read that and we think that he's only talking about non-Christians or people who are really far away from us. But you have to understand that when Jesus was saying those things, in the first century, he was saying them to the church about people in the church. In the first century, there were people in the church who were naked and needed to be clothed. There were people in the church who were hungry. We can think of why Paul goes and collects uh, money from the churches that, that he plants for the church in Jerusalem that was going through famine. And we look when he talks about visiting prisoners, Jesus is talking about future disciples like Paul who are spending time in prison. And we can think of in Paul's letter and he's saying, hey, come see me. All these people have abandoned me. And so we have to see <laughs> that in the first century, that when, that when Jesus lays these things out in Matthew 25, he is saying, you have the obligation to do this to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then when Paul is saying this in Galatians, he's talking about all people, but he's also talking primarily about the household of faith. Which brings us to our last point, which is this, is you must do good to all. Again, I want to remind you of the greater context of the book of Galatians. In Galatians 2, we see that Paul has to call out Peter because he's refusing to eat alongside Gentile Christians. That, that, he, that he and others have separated themselves and they've begun to ostracize themselves from Gentile Christians. And they began to treat them uh, almost as inferior believers because they did not eat the same way that Jews ate or because they did not practice circumcision. And he's saying that this has to stop and this divide has to stop. And so when Paul, when he gets to Galatians 6, remembering who this, this letter is targeted to, and he says, do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. He's saying, Jewish Christians, do good to all people. Do good to all Gentiles, especially the ones who are amongst you that you've been ignoring, especially to the ones who are with you that you've been putting out because they're not fulfilling your legalism. And so he's telling them that, and he's pointing right at them as he says, especially those of the household of faith. Another way to say that might be starting with the household of faith. That, that word there in Greek just means primarily or like to begin with. And so as he's doing that, he is saying, do good to all people, which is the great commission to make disciples of all nations. And he's telling them, do good to all people, but you need to start with the people you've been ignoring right in your midst. And that's what he's calling them to do. So as we look at that, we have to see that there's this divide. We have to see that it's pointed at the church and that they're to care for them. But I don't think he's saying to stop there. 
while he's telling them to start with the Gentile Christians in their midst, he's not saying, but that's all you need to care for. He does say, do good to all people. And we have lots of other passages of the Bible that tell us to do good even to the non-believer so that we might win them to Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Don't ostracize and forget about people within your body. Start there, but don't stop there. Continue to do that. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and he says this, if you and your church were to disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, would anyone in the community around you notice you were gone? What a humbling thing to consider. If for some reason you had to move from your neighborhood tomorrow, would your neighbors even care that you left? Would they feel a hole because you're the one who cares for them, who shows concern for them, who knows their name, who watches their kids when they need help? And if you left, it makes the neighborhood worse. If you were to leave your job tomorrow, would you leave a hole? Are you the kind of person who contributes, the kind of person who cares about people, the kind of person who, who, who notices when someone's off and you're asking them how they're doing, the kind of person who shared the gospel? Would they even care if you left? This is what it looks like to do good to all people, that when we do good to all people, we exalt the name of Jesus Christ. See, the great thing about church planting is it enables us to do good to really our entire city. I think Paramount has done a good job of doing good in Bexley. I think come 4th of July, they would notice if none of us showed up. I think we now make up like 85% of their volunteers. That's probably be generous. And that's a good thing. And those are things that we want to do. We want to continue to do good here. But we also have to see that if we're going to catch a vision that plants churches all throughout the city of Columbus, that it does require us as individuals being at a place where we're saying, my neighbors are going to know who I am and they would care if I left because I care for them. That's what church planting looks like. You know, the best strategy for church plants is if all of a sudden we blew up three community groups in one community. And then we could say, hey, the guys who are leading those community groups are doing a really good job. And our church grows to such a spot that we can now plant in that area. That's what happens when we all catch the vision of what what it looks like to not sit back and hope for opportunity or sit back and say, well, once the pastors lead me to do good, then we'll go do some good. Like, that's not what God is calling you to do. He's saying, take initiative. Do good while you have opportunity because you won't always have this opportunity. This is what it looks like for us to to impact our world, to make much of the things that Christ has given us in our resources, to take our five talents that he sowed in the paramount and make it into more. That's the wonderful thing about church planting is we get to do good in places like Bexley and Pickerington and Gehanna, and we get to do good like places like Galloway and Prairie Township and Hilliard is we get to be more than just us here. We get to expand out. I want to just conclude with this. The tulip tree is one of many trees that can actually grow by planting off its cuttings, meaning you're able to go to these beautiful trees and you can cut from them. And then when you take from those branches, you're able to take those branches, put them in potted soil and care for them, and they will actually grow roots and become their own new tree. And I think what a great picture of church planting. 
Church planting is taking this healthy tree of a healthy local church, and it's cutting away some of the healthy branches. And it's taking them to a new spot, and it's planting them in, and it's saying, grow roots and flourish so that you might grow up again. But here's what's really interesting about that, is when we cut away those branches, there becomes a need in that tree to grow and replace the branches that were cut away. As you look and you say, what is my part in church planting? Well, one, I do hope one day you're praying about what does it look like for, for us to have a church planting team? I want you to stress the Paramount pastors out <laughs> by making them think they're all going to leave us. That would be one of the best problems they have ever had, is if you guys were knocking down the door saying, we want to be a part of the next church planting team. That's the goal, that we have a place where it's harder to get them to stay than to get them out. That they're saying, cut me off and plant me. Because that's what it has to look like. That's what we need to impact our city. Well, at the same time, we have to have people who are staying, who are saying, I am now going to grow up and fill the spots that are being left by the cut off branches. It requires all of us to level up, if you will. If you're here and you're not very involved, the great thing about church planting is as we plant another church, there now becomes a lot of room for you to get involved. And that's what we need you to do, to grow in and fill it out so that Paramount remains this nice, strong, healthy tree that we can continue to cut from and plant more churches from. And so that's my encouraging to you. So I encourage you this week is to pray. How is God challenging you to be a part of church planting? Does it look like joining a church planting team? Joining our giving team? Does it look like coming in and filling in some of the spots, taking on more responsibility than you currently have because you know responsibility is leaving? If we can do that and do it well, we will have the joy of seeing the city of Columbus transformed for the good news and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you for the opportunity to, to speak here, to talk to my home church, my sending church, people we have sowed our lives deeply into. Lord, we thank you for for all the ways that you continue to bless us and enable us to do things like plant more churches. And God, that's what we ask. We ask for your blessing, your blessing so that Paramount can flourish and that Redemption Hill might flourish. God, that you would grow us up into nice, strong, healthy churches where you can cut away more people and plant more churches throughout this city, throughout central Ohio, and throughout North America and beyond. God, we thank you how you are already using us as we're sending people out from this body. It is our desire that you would send us out. Lord, that we might stand before you and say, here am I, send me. Help us know, help us question, God, what are you calling me to do? I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.